this fall at uh, the New Testament epistle of First Peter. And um, one, one of the things that um, you may wonder how we go about thinking about what we're going to do um, for... Um, I'm writing on my bulletin right now because I'm terrified that I'm going to forget to call Jacob and Eliza Oberly up here to take their first communion. So, um, you, you, you should pray for your pastor because, like, 99% of the mistakes you made are in front of people. Are in front of people, you know. So, I um, and I still might forget it. So the onus is on you to wave at me when it seems like that time. Okay. There, I get carried away. Anyway, um, so one of the th- one of the things that uh, the reason why I uh, felt like this was important was uh, for me, I am uh, tempted to hopelessness. Um, and uh, you know, some people talk about the glass being half full, I don't, I, don't, I can't see the glass, right? <laughs> Sometimes, like, what glass are you talking about? I, much less whether there's anything in it or not. So uh, I, I used to, when, when my kids were little, we used to read all of the Winnie the Pooh books, you know, and the only one of those characters that made any sense to me was Eeyore, you know, because uh, he was a gallant, righteous honest man who saw the world the way it is, right? So, um, so it's, it's important, uh, for us to, to come at this issue of hope. And, and and the reason for that is not just so we'll be happier, because that's the way we tend to think about hope is if I have some hope, I'll just feel better. I'll be happier. Life will be, life will be better. We'll, We'll be able to get along, you know, I'll, I'll be more pleasant and, and those sorts of things. Um, or I'll have less anxiety, less anger, less cynicism. Because there is a group of us in this church who take hopelessness to a whole new level where we can, uh, can in a self-righteous and self-justifying way, say, see what just happened? I'm justified in my hopelessness, Right? You ever been like that? Or there are some of us who are like so afraid to be uh, hopeful because it just seems so vulnerable, right? But in reality, um, the the truth of the matter is uh, Peter is writing to people just like us and he begins this letter by addressing them as exiles, but then he speaks the first thing that he wants them to know is that they have a living hope. Now, you would only say to people, first and foremost, you have a living hope if they were struggling with hopelessness. We know from what he says in this book that they're persecuted. We know from this book that there are many women in the church married to unbelievers, and those marriages are very difficult. We know as well that there are bosses and, uh, who abuse uh, their employees, just as a few of the things that he's going to address Uh, in this book. And so as we look at this today, that's one of the things that we have to come to grips with. And the fact of the matter is we look at our own lives and we know, we know people uh, uh, whose marriages are on the rocks and it seems like an intractable problem and it seems hopeless. We know people who are sick 
and it seems like an intractable, hopeless situation. We know people who live uh, in broken relationships, and it seems hopeless and an intractable situation. We live in a world where babies wash up on the beach, drown as they try to flee a worse death. And so as we look at this, as we think about this, and as we unpack this today, the fact of the matter is uh, hope uh, is, is something that's much more profound than what we tend to think it is, and much more powerful. So in light of that, uh, let's read First uh, Peter 1, uh, verses 2c through 9. We're going to read this text for several weeks because it's going to take us a while uh, to, work, <clears throat> to work our way through it. It's a great passage, one that it wouldn't hurt any of us to hear uh, several times over. So we'll, probably for the whole month of September, we'll be reading this passage. So uh, Peter uh, writes here in 1 Peter 1, 2, C through 9, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see, now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, so here's the thing. What Peter wants us to get a hold of first is this issue of hope. And, and there's something about that that's important. Now, now, the way we tend to think about that, and especially in the midst of all those things that I mentioned and all the things that go unmentioned, all the things that I know people in this church are struggling with, and all the things that I don't know that you're struggling with, but I know that there's enough in this congregation right now to rob every one of us of hope. So why is it so important for us to have hope? I, it seems to me like we, the logic of this sometimes works for us is, well, you know what, I don't want to, hope seems really vulnerable. I, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and, and, and you know what, I, that, that's enough. And so don't ask me in the midst of my life or in the midst of some other life to have hope. Now, hope is not happiness. Hope is not some kind of Pollyannish view of the future. That, that's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is something that is, is, is a profound power for us because Peter wants these people to have hope, not just so that they'll feel better, not just so that life will go better. He wants them to have hope so that they will be effective. Now, the way we tend to think about that is, my life is so hard, don't ask me to be effective. I, I am... Uh, uh, I, I, I am uh, off the, um, uh, the, the rolls uh, for being effective because I'm sad. 
or I'm hopeless, or I'm dealing with a difficult situation, or because I'm suffering, or because I'm struggling. What Peter actually wants to get at is, and this is what the whole New Testament says to us is, Paul says to us that the, 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 the trinity in some ways of the New Testament, the, thing that, the three things that are true of Christians is faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. We believe, we hope, therefore we love. And love means effectiveness in the gospel economy. So, it's, so what Peter wants us to grapple with is, is the truth of the gospel that it's going to bear in our lives this fruit of hopefulness that will then in turn make these struggling little scattered churches of exiles effective witnesses, effective colonies of heaven in the different places where they're planted. How can we have power of soul in times of great stress and anxiety, not just to endure the evil day, but to be joyful and to fill our lives with the fruits of righteousness, with deeds of kindness, with projects of mercy, with labors of love? See, the way I think about that is, look, I, I, I have these struggles. I have these disappointments. I have these pains. I have this sickness. I have, I have this grief. I have all of these things. And so... There's no way that Jesus can, can make a difference to me in such a way that I would actually have a fruit of righteousness, that I would actually do a deed of kindness, that I would have a project of mercy, that I would have a labor of love. In fact, the contrary is true. I am to be your, uh, you're supposed to do deeds of kindness to me. I am your project of mercy, and I am the object of your labor of love. No one laughed at that. Um, the, I thought that was funny. The 9 o'clock service got the humor and the irony in that. When your life is in jeopardy or your job or your marriage or your health or your respect in the community, which describes these people, how can you rise up with joy and bless those who abuse you and devote yourself to labors of love? To busy yourself for love's sake takes power in the very best of circumstances. But to spend yourself in love to others when your own life is falling apart, that takes a power of soul which is utterly beyond us. So let me just say right there, what I'm, what I'm talking about, what Peter is talking about, is beyond your grasp. It's not something, it's, I'm not telling you to reach in your soul and come up with your own human potential. I'm not telling you to, to practice the power of positive thinking. What I'm talking about is, is that something has to happen outside of us in time and in space that is real and that is genuine that will mark us and change us. And even as we are beleaguered and struggling people, the gospel will shine through the love of Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit will be in us. Now, now, you hear that and you think, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not a message for struggling people. Then, then what's it for? I mean, the, 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 the fact of the matter is, what, 
what, what we have to see about this is, is that the most profound witness often that Jesus has in people, the most profound work that he does in people is precisely those people who by virtue of their suffering or by virtue of their poverty or by virtue of their difficulty seem like the people that you would never see the work of God in and yet we see it most clearly in them, right? I I can't get over uh, several years ago when uh, uh, Pope John Paul II was dying, he he, he, people were like, he had Parkinson's and he was sick and he was decrepit. And uh, people were like, he should resign. He should quit. You know, we're, we're effectively, you know, we're, we're Americans and everything is about business and efficiency. And that is inefficient. The guy just looks terrible. But his viewpoint on this was that Jesus had a ministry for him, for the church and for the world through his suffering. And so, as, as we think about that, you know, we, we, we're a, we, one of the things that is our glory and our shame as a congregation is, we are a busy church. Look at that bulletin. Oh my goodness. You know, if you want to feed people, if you want to clothe people, if you want to teach people, if you want to change people's diapers, if you want to uh, if you wanna, uh, do, uh, if you want to love people, We have a million ways for you to do it. And yet, one of the things that comes so true to us in this is, and what what shapes us and what directs us in the midst of all this is, that in fact, those of us who are suffering, those of us who are the weakest, those of us who may seem the neediest, actually are the people through whom the hope of Jesus Christ shines the brightest, and therefore, our ministry, that ministry, is most effective, right? So, I, I've been thinking about this this week because it is, it is a difficult thing for a hopeless person, a person tempted to hopelessness, to tell other people to be hopeful. And so, one of the things that I, one of the Psalms that I've gone to a lot over the last couple of weeks is this one. Uh, nothing sounds more to me like hope than this first line, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Nothing, nothing seems more metaphorical to me the hope, to, for hope than light dawns in the darkness, right? Um, he is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Now, that's not God. That's the person sitting in the darkness, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. Sometimes I read stuff like that and I think, who wrote the Bible? He is not afraid of bad news? Really? Really, who is? He's not afraid of bad news? I live in fear of bad news. Um, for years, I used to come in on Sunday mornings, and it would be dark in my office, and I would look across at my desk to see my phone, because if there's a red light on my phone, that means there's a voicemail. And if there's a voicemail in my phone at 6.30 on Sunday mornings, it's almost never somebody calling me to say, have a happy day. <laughs> right? 
He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. So how can we experience hope when our desires seem to go unanswered and so often unfulfilled, right? Hope seems like a dangerous thing, right? That's what uh, Morgan Freeman tells um, um, Tim yeah, in uh, the Shawshank Redemption, right? That hope is a dangerous thing. And Andy says, no, it's the best thing. So what is Peter getting at then when he says that we've been, we have this living hope and that is what's supposed to mark us and change us and empower us and, and be the hallmark that is true of the church, right? And when we hear this, and you may be thinking this now, that is hope just another burden, right? Oh, gee, now, you, now I come to church to feel better, and you're telling me that I, I feel bad because I'm hopeless. It just feels like you're putting another burden on me. How can anybody have any hope in the world in which we live? Is it just wish fulfillment where we just project out there to, for good outcomes that, you know, that, that things will get somehow a little bit better. Next slide. Or is it just a fond hope, you know, where we, uh, um, we, we hope against hope, as it were, that, that something, something positive will happen. Maybe the Redskins will win more than three games, right? Um, is it fragile? Is hope for real? Does it, it just seems like it's, it's something that is just beyond our grasp and that when we grasp it, somehow or other, it gets snatched away. Or is it like what I tend to be, stoic acceptance and what I call bitter trust? Bitter trust is the fact that, well, I'm a Christian, so I guess I'm stuck with you, Lord, and you're stuck with me, right? And that's, uh, and that's about all we got. Or is it... Uh, Tomorrow is another day. That's the um, Scarlett O'Hara school of hope, where when everything goes wrong and her husband walks out on her, she decides tomorrow is just simply another day, right? Or is it something else? What is it? Next slide. Peter's answer is that hope is not a thing or a feeling or even good theology. It is living he calls it a living hope. And if it is living, it must be more than words, and it is actually more than words. It's actually a person. Now, this, it may be a little hard for us to, to lay our, our uh, hands around this morning, but the fact is what, what Peter wants us to see, that the hope that he calls on us to experience, the hope that is real, the hope that exists in time and in space, is bound up in Jesus Christ. And his experience is the key to get at this. Because remember what's true of Peter. Peter was the rock. He was the spokesperson for the disciples. He's in the inner circle. He's the one when Jesus said he was going to die, Peter said, may it never be so. I won't let it happen. I'll kill all of them before that happens to you. It will never happen to you. May it never be so. I will defend you to the death. And Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows, the third time you will have denied me. Before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. And Peter's like, no way, no way. But we read in the gospel, but Peter said, go back. Um, uh, when he's, uh, when they approach him about being a, a follower of Christ, he says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Shame, fear, anxiety. When Jesus died on the cross, it was the end of all Peter's hopes. He knew only bitter sorrow for his own denial, so the dawn could not bring hope. With the, crowning, uh, with the crowing of the rooster, he heard the echo of his curses, right? So, so whatever happened here, not only, not only is Peter's view and his vision of who Jesus was, not only is it crushed, but he feels responsible. He sees his own shortcomings. He sees his own fear, his own anxiety, his own uh, uh, self-protectiveness, all of those things that, that led him to deny Jesus. And so when Jesus is dead, he is undone. Everything uh, that he thought was true about Jesus, whatever he might have thought about him, whatever he might have thought about himself, whatever else he, he may have thought, is dead, it's dead, it's dead. And, and even his own view of himself, he's so ashamed, I'm sure he believed when he said, I'll defend you to the death. And yet when it came right down to it, he denied him three times. He is undone. Next slide. But Peter saw the risen Christ, and he saw him in a unique way. Now, one of the things that is mysterious about the New Testament, and one of the things that's mysterious about the way it talks to us about the resurrection of Jesus is we know that Jesus appeared to Peter uniquely. We read in, in uh, Luke 24, 34, when the guys came back from the Emmaus Road, they, they were told, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, it says that he appeared to Cephas, that is, uh, Peter, and then to the 12. So he had a unique uh, encounter with Jesus. We don't have a lot of information about that, but we see that uh, uh, is, is ex exactly what Paul says and what Luke tells us in Luke 24. So what did this mean? Well, the resurrection did more than restore Jesus to Peter. It wasn't just that, whoo, I'm glad that my denials don't really matter now since you're back to life. <laughs> you know, I'm glad, I'm glad that all that worked out. And so, you know, we can kind of level the playing field again and get on about our business. No, what, there, it was so much more profound than that. When Jesus rose from the dead and Peter saw that, that changed everything about the way he viewed the world. It meant victory. It meant victory. Because Peter's going to say, in just a few weeks at Pentecost, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
So in other words, what happened there, when Peter goes and he sees the empty tomb, and then he encounters Jesus Christ as risen, he knows that everything, all his categories are changed, the world has changed, everything about him, everything about his future, everything about his identity, all of these things suddenly has changed. Suddenly, uh, the world can never be the same again, and neither can Peter, because he knows that he's justified. If Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, then what that tells us is, is that when Jesus died on the cross, he made atonement for our sins and that God accepted that sacrifice. And if God accepted that sacrifice and raised Jesus from the dead, that means I am justified. I have the righteousness of Christ and those things that would make me ashamed, those things that would undo me have been paid for by the blood of Christ. I am justified. I have the righteousness of Christ. I belong to him. He owns me. I am his and he is mine. If I belong to Christ, then when the New Testament describes the church as the bride of Christ, that he's the bridegroom, then he wears a wedding ring that is stained with blood, his blood that he spilt, that he died to make me his own. And if those things are true, then I await the renewal of all things that began on the first Easter. When Jesus set foot out of that tomb, the world would never be the same. Now, here's the thing that you have to see about this. This is what makes hope, in some ways, a maddeningly beautiful thing. Because I know that Jesus rose from the dead. And because I know that Jesus rose from the dead, because I know my God raises the dead, because I know that I am accepted and I am justified, because I know these things are true, then I look about the world and and I'm tempted to sit in my darkness, and, and what I see is the pain and suffering and difficulty and grief and, and things that would tempt me to hopelessness, but the fact is, what I have to see about that is that Jesus sees those things too, and that is precisely because he came and died and rose again. Because if he didn't come and die and rise again, then we have no reason to hope. But because he did, the bleakest, darkest, ugliest situation that you can think of, we can rest in the knowledge, we can rest in the reality that Jesus rose from the dead, and somehow or other, Because I belong to him, he will redeem this grief, this sadness, this sickness, this horrible situation that I'm in. Because you see, hope, hope changes our orientation. The hope that is the living hope that is Jesus Christ, the hope that we have proclaimed to us by his empty tomb, says to us exactly what Peter says here. In this you rejoice, though now for a little time, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You're grieved, right? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How can you experience grief 
and at the same time have this joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. It is because seeing with the eyes of faith, I see the world for what it is. I see the brokenness and the pain and the suffering for what it is, but I also see that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. I see the empty tomb, and I know that this thing is passing away. But not only that, not only do I know that it's passing away, I also know that Jesus Christ is renewing me and renewing this world such that a day will come where it won't even be possible to experience or to know what that grief is like. And more than that, I know that he is redeeming, buying back, renewing all of creation because he's risen from the dead. And so if those things are true, then that reorients the way I view my life. It reorients the way I grieve, and it reorients the way I live. Paul tells those believers in Thessalonica to grieve with hope. To grieve with hope. The person who grieves with hope is powerful. Just powerful. The most glorious and the hardest thing I do is stand over a grave with a family of of loved ones and say, you'll see them again. They'll rise. That's grieving with hope. One of the hardest things we do as elders in this church is pray for the sick. That's grieving with hope. One of the hardest things we do uh, as a congregation is struggle together with folks who are lonely and poor and infertile and anxious and scared and angry. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, we have hope that he is at work, that he has risen from the dead, that he has ascended into heaven, that he will come again, and that he will change all of us once and for all. So what does this mean for us? If light shines in the darkness through Jesus, and we need fear, no bad news, then we realize that everything we have, money, time, friendship, you can fill in the blank, It's not something to cling to, but to give away, even, even in your darkness. This is not by way of commandment, but love. Happiness and hope is there, not in clinging to something, but in giving it away. Don't be afraid, then, of bad news, for you have the good news that triumphs over all bad news, the light that no darkness can overcome. Jesus is risen from the dead, and he's generous. He's generous. The marvelous thing about this Jesus, who is the living hope, is that he condescends to our hopelessness. Uh, He comes to us and gives to us something tangible to say, what I'm telling you is not a psychological game, 
but is real. It happened in time and in space. When Peter says that we have a living hope, and that living hope is Jesus Christ himself, what he's saying to us is, this hope is embodied. This hope has a life. It breathes, it sees, it hears, it touches. And so as we come to the table today, as we confess our sins, they're real. They happened in time and in space. You said those words. You thought those thoughts. You did those things. You looked at that that you should not have looked at. But more real is the death of Christ to cover those things and to justify you before God. So as we come to the table today,